Hi, I'm John Barnes, and you're watching Anything is Possible on Decentric Media. I'm Patrick Sang, global citizen, investor. Join me as I talk one-on-one -on -one exclusively with some of the most influential people, sharing positivity, overcoming challenges, creating one world together. I'm Patrick Sang. Anything is possible. Welcome everyone to Anything is Possible. Uh, I'm very honored, happy. Um, I'm in front of one of my role models and idols, John Barnes, MBE, former England and Liverpool legend. And now he's a big activist against racism. And we've got a lot to talk to him about. John, absolute, absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. And it's great to see that you're actually flying the colors um, with your crown paints top, uh, maybe a few years ago when we hadn't won the league for 30 years. I don't know whether you have had it on, but it's a good time to be a Liverpool fan and great to see you wearing that top. Well done. The reason is um, because um, we had to wait so long. I've been had to, to you know, re recollect the memories of being a champion, wearing the clothes from like, was it 30 years ago? Yeah, 30 years ago. Anyway, let's, let's, let's well, get started. Anything's possible, as you know, we're trying to share positivity, overcome challenges, and to create one world together, all three fit in very much with what you're doing and who you are as a person. So let's kick off to talk about, about COVID-19. Obviously we're in lockdown now in the UK and um, a lot of young people are facing big difficulties in terms of what are they gonna study, how they're gonna work, um, what's next, what kind of advice would you, um, would you give to our younger people? Well, first of all, I just want to give you an analogy about anything is possible, which really ties into what we're talking about now. And it's topical, especially as you're wearing that top. 15 years ago, who would have thought that Liverpool would have been able to win the league in, in 15 years' time? Five years ago, when Jurgen Klopp came, who would have thought that that's possible? And how did they do it? They did it because they stayed together. They had the belief. They had the determination. They had the humility. And now, of course, in these difficult times, it's a similar situation. As much as we can't see light at the end of the tunnel because this is very new, if we look at what's happened throughout history, from the Spanish flu 100 and odd years ago, and even going back before then, um, the, 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 the Black Death, the plague, human beings have been through this before. And of course, in the early stages, it's been very difficult for everybody, even back then, as much as we may not appreciate that. But of course, as long as we stay together, we believe in each other, we believe in the, 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 the people who are supposed to be getting us out of this, be they the scientists, be they the politicians, and it's a very difficult time because there's so much ambiguity surrounding what we actually should be doing. Um, we now have much more freedom than, than we did in the past. And in certain countries, we are much more free and able to do certain things. But I think we really just have to stay positive, um, keep believing in, in what we're doing is the right thing. And, you know, we'll get through it. But as I said, it's early days. And in, in, in the early days of any, in the early days of Liverpool not winning the, the league for many years, people would not have believed that we could have done it. So really, it's just about having that belief, that togetherness, that humility and that understanding that, you know, if we stay together, we believe we'll come through it. Absolutely. So before we go on to a bit about your career, just a point that you just mentioned, Spanish flu. And, you know, I think you and I have been talking on and off regarding the media and that perception is reality. And we're going to go on to like all this perception stuff in a minute. But one thing I wanted to, to, to let you know, I'm sure you know this, is that when the Spanish flu was happening, it actually wasn't the place where it actually started. It actually started, I think, somewhere in Germany. So during the war, 
because they didn't want the enemy to know that you know they they are being weakened. So it ended up Spain, Spain was a neutral country at the time during the war, is my understanding. And as a result, that's when the media first purported to know about this disease. And as a result, that's how the name stuck to it. So unfortunately, you know, media, once it puts a perception on something, then, you know, it's very difficult to remove. And even, you know, 100 years later, we're still calling it the Spanish flu, even though it's actually nothing to do, it's nothing to do with actually from Spain. Of course, well, of course, once again, it's the perception of where we think something originated from. And the perception is everything. And of course, the way that the media reports on things, if we even want to talk about which, this is not about that, we can talk about the, the, the situation and the Rwanda crisis, when everybody in the West first became aware of it, when we saw millions of displaced Hutus in Uganda and these camps. And what we didn't know was three months earlier, um, 800,000 Tutsis had been murdered by them. But because the media didn't report that, we just looked at the Hutus and thought that these poor people have been kicked out of their country. And that is why, obviously, from a propaganda, from a conditioning point of view, it's very important for us to understand why we believe the things that we actually do. Um, so, yeah, but we'll get into that much, much further down the line. So, John, obviously, you know, I'm not going to talk too much about your football career and, and, you know, everyone knows what you've done. I think, you know, the interview today, we're trying to, like, take lessons out of some of the experiences you had as a young boy, as a man, I guess as an older man now and then sharing these visions and experiences and I guess failures and setbacks with some of our younger guys so that people can, can learn and do better in their lives. So um, you obviously grew up in Jamaica and then you moved to the UK. Can you tell us a bit about your childhood and how certain things or events affected you to become who you are today? Well, you know, we do take our childhood for granted. And of course, it's only later on looking back and we see, A, the environment we brought, brought up in, the people who inspired us, who influenced, influenced us, and the influences and the environment that we're actually in, which are either subliminal or unconscious, which forms who we are, we don't even analyze or think about. Because as a young boy growing up in Jamaica, I, I, I was fully empowered by my family to understand that from any point of view, whatever I wanted to achieve, I could. Now, I was fortunate because it's only later on when I look back and, and think about John Barnes from a middle-class Jamaican family whose family, his mother's family, started the Jamaican government in the 1950s. Um, his father was the head of the army, military attaché, went to Sandhurst with um, Andrew Parker Bowles, who's Camilla Parker Bowles, who'd be the queen when um, uh, Prince Charles becomes king. So I had a very privileged upbringing. At the time, I didn't think about it. It was just my life because people don't think about that. And so therefore I was, anything was possible for me. Um, in Jamaica, anything was possible for me. I wasn't to know that my father was then going to be sent as military attaché to England. So I never thought about being a professional footballer in England. I did not always play football. I grew up playing football. My father played football for Jamaica. Now, had I stayed in Jamaica, I would have played for Boyth Cavaliers, my favorite Jamaican team. I would have played for the national team, not as a professional because there's no professional footballers. I would have gone to university in America, got a degree, still played football. So. I couldn't envisage my life being what it was. But what I did know because of my upbringing and my, my environment was that I would be given opportunities to be successful in whatever I wanted to do. So I am not typical of when we're talking about anything is possible. I think we try and inspire people who may feel they haven't got a chance because A, they're maybe, you know, a working class person from the inner city who's very bright and is trying to get somewhere, aspires to, to do something. And it's much more difficult than him for, than for me but in terms of myself, it's only later on looking back, I felt I looked and see how privileged I was to be able to achieve what I achieved. However, as much as 
you have a lot of privileged people who may be given opportunities who may not achieve what they, they achieve because it's not just about being privileged. It's not just about the opportunity. It's about your attitude to grasp that opportunity when it comes. We don't know when the opportunity is going to present itself, but when it does, we have to be prepared to do that. And because of the way I was brought up with my family, the discipline that I had with my father being, interestingly, paradoxically, a British army officer at the time, um, which is about stiff upper lip, which is about, I never say die attitude, which is about being stoic, uh, being resilient. That is the way I was actually brought up. So I realized that when I got to about 19, 20, 21, when I became a footballer, but of course, as an eight, nine, 10 year old boy, I just felt that why my parents being so hard on me because I don't want to study. I don't want to go to training. We had to swim. We had to do all these sports. And it's not just about doing the sports. It's about the preparation that you have to put into it, meaning the, the, the work that you put into it, the ethic, the, the, the discipline, because my father, as much as he knew I had talent in lots of different sports, he said, talent alone is not enough. Hard work and effort and commitment is the most important thing. And that was my grounding as a seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old boy, which meant that when I got an opportunity as a 17-year-old to be a professional footballer in a foreign country in England, and I'm from Jamaica, how am I going to do that? So um, I obviously have a lot to thank my upbringing for. Absolutely, John. So it's quite interesting. So your dad's obviously from, you know, the military. So he's obviously a disciplined person. What about your, your mum? Well, my mother, um, well, my mother was very similar because, as I said, her father and his brother and Alexander Bustamante, Norman Landy, who started the first government in Jamaica, um, they were, she was very political. Uh, and of course, Jamaica, as a lot of the Caribbean islands were quite left leaning at that particular time after independence because socialism was rife. And I suppose for countries like that, that probably was the best way to be um, after colonialism. Um, so she always was a woman of the people, if you like, in terms of as much as she understood also her privilege, her thoughts were always about what can we do to help people. And even my father, who was obviously, um, he, 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 he being, being in the British Army as it was then, the Jamaican West Indies Regiment, loving Winston Churchill, loving Britain. I mean, even when I grew up in Jamaica, and even now, my father passed away, sadly, but on Christmas Day, he still stands to attention on the Queen's speech and stuff like that. So a real old school. But he also understood that being from the Caribbean, as he was when he first went to Sandhurst, for example, he understood that, yes, he's been given an opportunity. And as much as he loves the British Army and he loves Churchill and he loves Nelson, and he believes in, in, in that, he understood that he would be discriminated against because he's not white English. And he's there with Andrew Parker Bowles. He's there with the heads of who is going to be the heads of the, of the, of the army, uh, the British Army for 400 years who, you know, colonized the whole world. And he's going to be like them in terms of being at Sandhurst with them, but they're not gonna look at him as with the, 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 the young officers from Nigeria, from Ghana, from Singapore, from Hong, from Hong Kong, all of these army officers from the, from the colonies were there. And he knows that they're going to be as much as accepted because it's part of the British army, because it's a colony, you're gonna be looked upon negatively. So my father decided that he is going to volunteer for everything. So he became the heavyweight boxing champion at Sandhurst, never boxed before. He played rugby at fullback for Sandhurst, never played rugby before, because he felt he then had to show that he was as equal to them because he knows the way they, they view him. So this is the kind of upbringing that my father had, as much as he understood he was, he wasn't elitist. He wasn't elitist in the slightest, but he understood that for someone like him, consequently, other people like him who may not have the privilege that he has, has to be resilient, has to be stoic. Yes, we are fighting against discrimination. However, you can't let that stop you. And that is what he actually did. So at times when even, and I said, if my father went to war, he would die on the first day. My father then became the head of the Jamaican army. He was a colonel, then he 
got sent to England as military attaché. He became head of the Jamaican army. The head of the army doesn't go on the front line with his men in the first battle on D-Day. My father would. My father would have grew up in Jamaica as the head of the army, second in command of the army before he came to England. We'd wake up at six o'clock in the morning to go running with the private soldiers and the corporals. They were his men. Because as much as he is one of the elite and the head of the army, he knows that you're only as good as your men. And he had to show his men that he was one of them. And I speak to so many 70-year-old army, army retirees now who are only privates and corporals in the army. And they said, Colonel Barnes, as they called him, even now, I see them now, and they said he was an unbelievable man because he was one of them. And he understood that for us to be strong, forget about the leaders, look at what, and that's what war, so if you go back to World War I, World War II, it was not about the Winston Churchills, it was about the men who actually went and fought and died. And my father had so much reverence for them that we'd speak about it now, my mother, my, my sisters, if daddy was in a war, he would not survive because he would be on the front line. He would be the first one, he wouldn't be at the back. He would, he would be the first one over because he had to show his men that he was one of them. And, and I suppose subliminally that was also me. So when I started to play football and people saw me as a superstar, I still saw myself like my less so-called lesser teammates. And that really is the essence of what a community and a football team and a family is. Super lesson, John. I think uh, I, I didn't realize your, your dad was such a, a, you know, a bigger man than you are. Uh, but on a serious Absolutely. note, I, I, I have a you know, very similar um, a similar like a uh, upbringing. I mean, obviously not as uh, as serious as your father because he was in the army. But when I was growing up in the UK in, in Northern Ireland, as you know, um, I was also an immigrant from a colonial state at the time, Hong Kong. And growing up in a predominantly like white country, I was also subjected to a lot of like uh, racist abuse when I was like a bit younger. And I had the same, 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 exactly same mentality as your father, which was I just shut up and just got on with it. And you just had to work twice as hard as anyone else just to show people that you are not necessarily better but at least just as good so the color of your skin or where you come from shouldn't determine or dictate how you feel unfortunately sometimes for other people people might not react in the same way and that's why you know people get pushed down to the bottom echelons of, of society but moving on uh, regarding your football career so obviously your father was a big um football player as well. So would, it, would we say that he was your teacher in football who introduced you to the sport? He was my teacher in life, not so much in football, because of course, as people all over the world know that you don't really need a teacher in football. It's just the biggest sport in the whole world. And regardless whether they have a teacher or not, football is going to be the number one sport. So I grew up in Jamaica. Um, my school was right beside Sabina Park. If you know anything about cricket, that's where the home of West Indies cricket is. Sabina Park, and I asked to walk across Sabina Park to school every day. I did play cricket. I played football. My father, as I said, was a sportsman. My sister swam for Jamaica. She played squash for Jamaica. My dad played cricket. He was born in Trinidad, and he came to Jamaica when he was 19 to join the British West Indies Regiment as an, army, as an officer. So anybody in the Caribbean, any of the islands, Trinidad, Barbados, Guyana, who wanted to join the British Regiment then in the 50s, you had to come to Jamaica. That's where it was based. So he's not from Jamaica. He's from Trinidad. Obviously, he became a naturalized Jamaican, so he came to, 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 to Jamaica. So he played cricket for Trinidad Second Eleven. He then played football for Jamaica because, of course, it wasn't professional. He's an army officer. He's a good footballer. He's disciplined. He then started playing football for Jamaica, managed the Jamaica national team. He played squash for Jamaica. So he was a real sportsman. So that's what he did with us. So while football was always my favorite sport, I was actually playing swimming competitively. My sister swam for Jamaica when she was 14 and 15, and I swam competitively for a swimming team. Um, before I was playing organized football. And why my swimming career ended at 10 was obviously 
once again, because of my father, who believed that you have to do everything with honesty, authenticity, and complete commitment. Every time we had to go to training at the Olympic swimming pool, which is about half a mile from our house, on the way there, walking to training, swimming training, every day at eight years old, I would stop off to play football with my friends sometimes. So I would go to swimming training every day like my sisters did. And my father said to me, if you're not going to be taken seriously and be committed to it, stop doing it. So my swimming career ended at um, nine years old uh, because I wasn't as committed as much as, and when I say committed, he means going to swimming training every day. He doesn't mean like going twice a week. And that's what my, my father was. If you're going to do it, you do it with full commitment. And so, you know, my swimming career ended. So we were from a very sporting household. Um, they, education was the number one thing for them. And that's why I suppose they're so pleased that I became a footballer because that was not my thing. Whereas my sister got a PhD in English. My other sister was a lawyer, now works in America. So education was my big, my, my family's biggest thing. So when we came to England, obviously I went to a good school, but football was always going to be my sport. As I said, not professionally, because I'm anticipating going back to Jamaica. When my father's four-year posting was over, I got offered a scholarship to go to um, Washington University. It was a football scholarship. I would have gone there, did a degree in whatever. As you know, American universities, you, you do a degree in your first degree. You don't know what you're interested in, but it gives you an opportunity. I would have played football as well. Maybe just got a job, gone back to Jamaica, played football always. But one week, sorry, um, six months before I was due to, to go back to Jamaica, my father already gone back. Watford, my first stop, saw me playing in the park for a local team and offered, me a, and, and offered me a trial, then offered me a contract. And that's the only reason I stayed to be a footballer. I didn't grow up at, eight, at 10, 11, 12, 13. Even when I came to England at 13, 14, 15, I never thought I'd be a professional footballer in England because the family's going to go back to Jamaica in four years and my father got, got recalled. So that's why I'm a big believer in fate. And what does I say? You work towards something. And I wasn't working towards being a professional footballer. I was working towards being a disciplined footballer, maybe amateur in Jamaica, maybe in America, having a job. And because of that, an opportunity presented itself to me to then say, here's an opportunity for you. And are you able to now grasp it? Because I wasn't preparing to be a professional footballer. I was preparing from a disciplined point of view to go to university, to be a footballer, to be a friend, to do whatever. And when a, uh, an opportunity presents itself, am I able to take it? And just to give you an example, I've seen so many players, since I became a professional footballer, I've seen so many talented footballers. I go into the, I do work in the community in London and I see all of these, these young black kids. This is not so much now because opportunities are greater. And I see them and they're saying, can you help me to be a professional footballer? I want to play for Liverpool. Do you know anybody at Liverpool? And I say, who do you play for? They say, well, I don't play for anybody now, but I know I can be a good player. And I said, what you want to do is get yourself to the local team, go to training every day, work hard. Then if opportunity presents itself, then you're able to do it. You can't say, I'm not going to try, but I know I'm good enough. And then if you get me a trial, I'm going to make it. You would never make it. So the preparation is the most important thing, not the opportunity. And I had been prepared, not th consciously thinking I'm going to be a footballer, but my father said, go to training every day, go running at night by yourself. And I'm 14, 15 years old. I'm not thinking about being a professional footballer. And I'm saying, why have I got to do this? Because you can never tell when the opportunity presents itself, but when it does, you have to be prepared to take it. It's very interesting, John. So, John, tell me about your, um, how was your academic, um, you know, background and how was your family's, you know, um, pressure on you to, you know, study hard and do well at school? Obviously, the sports and physical side, they were very encouraging. But what about the academic side? That is where, when people talk about a human being and you look at your, 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 the essence of who you are, but then look at your environment and you look at the all around person saying that, yes, we're a product of our environment, but we do have in essence something aside from that, 
depending on whether you believe in karma, reincarnation, we don't know where that comes from because I've got seven children and you bring them up the same way and they're completely different in their character. From my point of view, my family's point of view, pushing education from the beginning with my cousins, they're doctors, orthopedic surgeons, lawyers. My, my cousin's a federal judge in America. She's having a hard time with Donald Trump, not after a few hours, hopefully. So education was a big thing in my family. Now, obviously from a karmic consequence point of view in a previous life, that didn't reach me because um, my family always struggled with getting me to study. I always felt I was bright, um, but not in, in the sciences or so. So, you know, I went to good schools in Jamaica. I went to a good school here, but I was just not really interested in, in, in school at all. So I think that's the, probably the one thing that as much as we talk about discipline, no amount of discipline could get me interested in that at all. And, and okay, so let, let, let's talk about two things here regarding on, on this asset. So obviously you're, you're father to a, f uh, a few kids and um, do you let them, do, do you sort of use some of the lessons that you got from your father to you that gave you that discipline or are you a bit more, you know, not as strict as, as your father was in terms of the discipline? Well, there are two aspects, um, because of course, in my first marriage where I have four kids, I've got a 35-year-old, a 31-year-old, a 26-year-old, a 21-year-old. Now, of course, my 35-year-old was born 35 years ago. We were living in an environment whereby parenting was different then. Um, parenting growing up in Jamaica is different to parenting growing up in, in, in England in terms of discipline. Sometimes corporal punishment, which of course we're frowned upon now where we can't. And when you talk about corporal punishment, people naturally equate it and i like i look at like um when you talk about racism people have a binary view whereby you're either racist or you're not there's lots in between in terms of discipline in children when you talk about corporal punishment there's abuse and there's a little tap that sometimes a kid has to get to know not to put his hand into fire and we're somewhere along that line so of course in my first marriage we were able to do that with with our children um me and my first wife so my children are very disciplined in terms of the way i brought them up so my 35 year old son has just got his um He's a, a plastic surgeon, a consultant. He just got his consultancy. He's very bright. My other daughter's a doctor as well. She's an she's a anesthetist. My third son got a first in maths at Leeds. Um, he's now works for Standard Chartered. As a, as a, he's a trades interest rates. And my other daughter works as an estate agent. She's the youngest. She's 21. So education and discipline was the most important thing for them. And in terms of the way we actually brought them up. Obviously, with my, my second lot, who are 16, 14, and 10, with my new wife. This is obviously years later when things have changed. So in terms of the way I would like to, um, I always say, I mean, laugh and joke about it because of course my wife who's a 10, 12 years younger than me, my second wife, uh, and she believes in terms of softly, softly with the kids and allowing them certain, certain privileges and allowing them to do certain things with their phones. And of course now, you know, my kids have never been on a bus because we pick them up, we take them everywhere, but this is life anyway. So. I'm wrestling with that uh, because obviously being a, from a particular era in terms of what I think is right to do, the balance is important. Um, but if you look at youngsters generally today anyway, in the culture that we actually live in, and which is so important, which is why we're doing now talking about anything's possible because we live in an environment now whereby we think that there are shortcuts and, 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 and short-term solutions to success because all we have to do is go on our phone and we can be influencers or YouTubers and you just spend all your time on your phone. And for every person you see being successful, you think that we can all do that. But that's not reality. So um, I'm probably a little bit different now. I'm biting my tongue a little bit more uh, in terms of when I see my young daughters just doing YouTube and on the phone 24 hours a day. Because ultimately, it's exactly the same. Hard work. It's like when you talk about football and the difference between football in the 50s and now. There's no difference. To the industry, yes. But to the game, there's tackling, there's running, there's scoring goals, there's defending. It's the same now in life. Hard work, commitment, dedication. And I use Richard Branson as an example. And a lot of people will then talk about, well, you don't need to you know, go to university or study. 
Because look at Richard Branson. A, Richard Branson came up from a family which was quite an elitist family who obviously had help and avenues into different places. But that aside, I'm sure Richard Branson's waking up at six o'clock in the morning to go and work hard in terms of whatever he was doing, be it on a market, doing whatever he's doing. He was committed. Whereas people just say, he made it by not, by not going to university or studying. And what they don't want to do is work as hard as Richard Branson in having to get up in the morning to go to the market or to whatever and just wake up at 12 o'clock, not be committed and use him as an example and say, yes, but what else? He was still committed in terms of what he actually did to his job. So um, in, in a roundabout way, I'm, I'm, I'm probably trying to tell you that it's much more difficult being the kind of parent that I want to be now in, in modern times. <laughs> I, mean, I guess, you know, we have to adapt to, to, to any situation um, and times change, right? So, um, you know, what, what, what's like the biggest highlight or highlights of your, you know, what does football brought to you? Once again, one of the big lessons I learned are that highlights are important. The consistency you've shown over a period of time, your life is what's important. Because if you just look at highlights, I can mention individual moments of brilliance, the goal against Brazil, I won player of the year, we've done this, I've done that. You forget about the hard times that really makes you who you are. And you look at the average of what you've done over a 10, period, 10 year period at Liverpool, 18 year period as a professional footballer, the good and the bad. And I say, that is my, that is my highlight. Because if you just want to look at the good things and forget about the bad things, that is not reality. And that's what obviously we're living in this day and age, because when you go on, my kids go on the phone, all you see are people posting their happy times and the highlights and how great things are. What you don't see is probably 70% 70, 70 of the time when they have makeup on and they're hungry and they're depressed and they, you know, they're sad. And everyone then feels that their lives are great and it makes you feel your life is terrible because everyone seems to be having a great time. So I don't focus on highlights at all. And people ask me this question all the time, the highlights of your career. I said, my whole career. Roger McKinney's 10 and I'm 29, 28 years old. I should be in my prime coming into 29.30 when I should be doing what I'm doing. I'm not even able to run anymore. They thought I wouldn't play again because of my rupture of the Achilles tendon, but I had another four years still playing for England and I had another six years, seven years still playing professional football. And that must've been a terrible time. It wasn't, it wasn't. So while my early years is when I was able to do everything that people appreciated, I still, still felt valuable to the team, enjoying what I'm doing, not the same player, but I understood that I was still worthy and I still had as good a time then as I, as I did. So there are, I don't focus on highlights in my career at all. I, I use my whole 18-year football career as my highlight. And as a, as a parent and as a friend, I look at my, my whole life. Very well said, John. John, what about this um, like mental toughness? Obviously, you know, you've, from a young age, as you've mentioned before, that because of your family, the way you were brought up, that you were very disciplined in the things you did. But obviously, as, as you became professional, you're in the media spotlight, obviously, when you know, black players were not prevalent. Then you moved into, in my opinion, the, the biggest club in the world, Liverpool, and you did very well, obviously. And then you played for England and then you became a manager and it was like ups and downs, right? But uh, the question about mental toughness is, did you always have the mental toughness or are you sort of like working your way in every new situation? As you know, people are asking, oh, why, why can't the guy translate his form from Liverpool to country, all these kind of like, questions and it's very easy for the media from just kind of drinking a pint of lager to ask or oh, why is he not playing well so how, how, tell us a, a bit about the process of how you develop your mental toughness well first of all um i think that you have to to look at a the environment i was brought up in the way i've been brought up in my father saying you are fully committed to what you're going to do and when you're fully committed let the cards lie where they fall you give 100% and if you win, you win. You don't win, you don't win, but you have done the best you can. And that's all you can ask. And because that's the way I've been brought up, 
I'm not then looking at other people to then say that, you know, they have criticized me and, and, and I feel bad because I couldn't have done any more. I tell you, this is my whole philosophy on, on, on success. John Barnes, um, at 25 year, years old, who's a, quite a decent athlete for a 100 meter sprint, can probably do 11.3 seconds. Usain Bolt can do 9.4 seconds. John Barnes is going to race Usain Bolt. John Barnes races Usain Bolt. John Barnes does 11.3 seconds. Usain Bolt beats me by 20 yards, but he does 10.3 seconds. John Barnes is more successful because I've got closer to my maximum and I've maximized my potential, whereas he's run a second slower. So as much as he's beaten me, I am more successful because I've maximized my potential. And that's what you have to do in life. Everybody cannot be the best, but you can be the best you can be. And as long as you do it with authenticity, then you can't complain. So that's what I always looked at it. And, and I remember as a young boy, when obviously, you know, you learn as you grow. And Graham Taylor, who was also a great inspiration before I came to Liverpool, said to me, I remember when I played for Watford, and the English press, they love, of course, you know, they love an underdog in, in, in England beating the big boys. So they love Watford and love me when I play for Watford. Then they were criticizing me when I play for Liverpool. Sorry, for, for England. And Graham Taylor pulled me in at 19 years old and he said, you know, when you play for, you know, when you play and the press say, when you play for Watford and they say that you're fantastic and you're the best player in the world and how great you are. He said, do you believe them? And if, he sa and if I said, yeah, or, or well, of course you want to believe them. He said, well, if you believe them, when you play for England and they say you're terrible and you're rubbish, you have to believe that as well. You can't have it both ways. So I then made my mind up not to worry about what other people said about me. As long as I try my best, work with authenticity, work with commitment, then it can get criticized or not because there's certain different agendas. And at that time, because I wasn't born in England, it really stemmed from a story about me not being committed to England because I was born in Jamaica. And um, the story was then, it was in the, one of the newspapers I'm going to talk about, was then that because I used to have a bit of banter with Brian Robson, some of the England team, whenever England played West Indies a cricket, I'd want West Indies to win. So they put that in to say, I'm not really committed. So when the performances weren't great, they put that down to the fact that you're not committed to England. Secondly, you have to look at, from a technical point of view, the way Liverpool played and the way England played. And when Bobby Robson would say to me, the fans say, well, when you play for England, we want you to play for England the way you play for Liverpool. I said, well, England has to play the way Liverpool played. Now, back in the 80s, you have to remember, if you look at just the technical aspect of football, English football was about effort, commitment, fighting, strength. It wasn't about technique. Glenn Hoddle is the greatest technically best English player ever, Glenn Hoddle. I'm telling you, look at Beckham, Gerrard, anybody. Glenn Hoddle was in incredible. He got 50 caps because at that time, it wasn't about that. It was about Brian Robson, Peter Reid, the hard center forwards. And because the physical game and the, and the laws were such that you could, we could be overly physical with teams and win. That's how England won. We weren't better than anybody, but more physical. So the technical players, Glenn Hoddle, myself, Chris Waddle, any players like that were never really you appreciated or, or revered because that's not what English spirit was about you know we used to look at these continental players and even when we played against teams like algeria and these teams were very good technically but we were physically better than them they were technically better than us but we would beat them so the players like glenn hoddle were never really appreciated because that's not what english football was if you look at english football now in the last 15 years since the premier league started it's all been about the technical player so i would love to play now so that is the reason why myself chris waddle glenn hoddle weren't you I won't say used properly because we were used in the way that English football was. So they couldn't have done anything different, but we weren't as appreciated and we were always criticized. Um, but from my point of view, I would always feel you go out there, give a hundred percent, give your best. And then if it works, it works. Absolutely, John. I mean, that's basically my philosophy as well, where I always use the example of, you know, everyone's dealt a hand of cards, like in the, you know, life game of poker. And, you know, you just have to play the best hand that you have presented to you. 
and not comparing yourself to anyone else. Because in, in Chinese, we have a phrase saying, if you compare yourself to somebody else, you will die because of, I mean, not, not obviously not literally, but it means that you're putting yeah. pressure onto yourself, your family, your friends unnecessarily, because like you said, um, very succinctly, it's like the Usain Bolt analogy. So moving on, um, after the whole football career, um, you've obviously gone on to management and then eventually now you, you know, you're a, a pundit and also um, doing a lot of like, I guess you would call an advocate or activism against racism. Um, has that been uh, a thing that has been with you for a long time or it's sort of developed more towards the latter half of your, of your life? I thought about this since I was 18 years old because I came to England as a 13 year old boy and that's when the idea of racism and inequality really hit me because, of course, in Jamaica, there is colorism and there is inequality from a class perspective. And that's the nuances of, in, of inequality and, and discrimination anyway. But I never thought about it because I was a light-skinned, middle-class, top of the tree, who never thought about the black inner-city kids who were disenfranchised and, were, and were, who, who were discriminated against, even by, by me and by others. But, of course, we never thought about that because we were at the top of the tree. So I think about the fact that young, and when Bob Marley started to sing about inequality, it was like, come on, Bob, I mean, this not, this, that's not right, because look at me, I'm black, and you know, we didn't think about that. So then when I came to England and I saw the inequality of people who looked like me, although I didn't identify with them because I am a light-skinned, middle-class Jamaican who's at the top of the tree, forget about color, that never affected me at all, never affected me. So my whole thing from as a 17-year-old playing at Watford when I went to West Ham, and I would get bananas coming on the field and these racist people would abuse me. It never bothered me because I, I felt, and this is how conditioning, sub, subliminal or otherwise works. I didn't have to bite my tongue to feel what I'm better than you because I'm playing for Watford in England and I'm earning all this money. I really felt, you can't even spell your own name. You, 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 know, you, you haven't got a job. So how can you feel superior to me just because you're white and I'm black? My whole environment, my whole experience tells me that I am superior to you, you know? Um, I never really thought about that dynamic of white being superior to black. And that's from his perspective, that's what he thinks. It's not personal towards me, it's about the group that he belongs to feeling superior to the group I belong to. But I never felt individually that that affected me at all. Although I always felt, even from as an 18 year old, that okay, I feel fine. I feel fine, so it's not bothering me at all. But that football fan beside you, who I know is disenfranchised in the community comes from, how does he feel? How does he feel? And I always felt, worse for them than I did for myself because I didn't feel bad at all so it really never affected me but I knew it affected some friends of mine who obviously lived in the inner cities in London and I always felt that I should really speak for them because I'm getting on a coach to go up the Holloway Road back to Watford on a nice coach we're going to drink a glass of wine and have lobster on the meal and you have people outside on the Holloway Road Arsenal fans and it's not Arsenal fans are racist it's just they have to be Arsenal fans because we're playing against Arsenal and they're racially abusing me and I'm having lobster and drinking a glass of wine and growing up. And I know that if I played for Arsenal, they'd be patting me on the back and loving me if I scored goals for them. So th this is not a real situation. However, those, as I'm looking along those 10, 20 racist fans throwing stuff, I see black people walking alongside them, cowering in fear, ducking into, and I'm saying, they're the ones who we should really worry about. Who's speaking for them? And they're the ones who go through this every single day of their lives because football, racism and football is unreal because Football is just so all-encompassing. And the phenomenon of football, whereby the most racist football fan 
consciously or unconsciously, a black player comes for his team and he scores a hat-trick against the opposition, he's going to love it. He's going to love it, regardless. Now, if he doesn't play well and he doesn't score a hat-trick and he's a terrible footballer, he will be more critical of him than the white players. But ultimately, you give them what they want, they love. So from that point of view, the whole thing about racism in football for me didn't really make sense. And, and I thought that's not a real situation because that's for 90 minutes on a Saturday, whereas black people going through this every day of their lives, um, insidiously, um, implicitly, they live this. This is their reality. That's what we have to t tackle. And I felt that since I was 18 years old. Now, there's no avenue to talk about it, to discuss it in that way for the, for the next, my whole footballing career till I got to 36, because this now directive is relatively new. You want to talk about maybe the last 10 years, whereby we're now talking about equality and doing something about it. A, we're going about it the wrong way, which we've discussed, but anyway. But from my point of view, since I was 18 years old, I always felt, and I was an activist back then, even though we didn't have the avenues because there's nowhere to discuss it. But in my own head, I was always thinking that this is what we have to change and challenge. Absolutely, John. So we've also been talking um, offline about you know, all these um, issues which needs to be dealt with um, urgently and it needs to be set off in time. So um, what do you think? I mean, obviously you've, you've um, talked a lot about this already, but in terms of how would you tackle um, this issue in terms of to bring more awareness to, to the public? It's a very um, complex situation. It's been three, 400 years of, of, of conditioning. And it's not just from a racial point of view, it's got a gender point of view, a sexuality point of view, whereby people have been conditioned to think negatively about different groups of people, be they black, be they women, be they gay. And we have to dismantle, deconstruct what we have learned. And it's not crazy, stupid, ignorant, racist people who came up with this idea of racial superiority. It is the most intelligent minds in the world. 300 years ago, you're looking at Einstein, you're looking at Blumenbach, you're looking at Linnaeus, you're looking at you know, David Hume, you're looking at uh, you know, um, Abraham Lincoln. As much as he was against slaves, he never th against slavery, he didn't really advocate for equality in, in, in race. So we knew slavery was wrong, but we never, ever, no one ever thought Wilberforce you know, you talk about the abolition of slavery. While he knew it was wrong from a religious point of view, he never ever thought that a black man was equal. And that's what we have to start to do. Not just look to pass laws, we have to look to change perceptions of black people. Black people also have to look to change perceptions of black people because we have become traumatized in the whole thing. We think we are not part of this debate about the inequality of the races, but we are. And my whole thing about that is if you look at, and I'll use just as a simple example, David Silva, when that that image of that suite, and he said he looked like Benjamin Mendy, we automatically thought that that's an insult to a black man because you know, you're know you dehumanizing a black man. It is not equating a little round Maltese of sweets to a black man. So um, a human being is not superior to a sweet or a sweet is not superior to a human. But in ourselves, we are looking at any black image and seeing it in a negative way. Now, it's very complicated and nuanced because if you see John Barnes, a cartoon, or Kylian Mbappe, or Kyle Walker, light skin, Finnish lips, not obvious black features, people are gonna go, oh, that's okay. But if you show, show a cartoon of a jet black man with big lips and a round head, you say that's racist because of the negative perception that even black people have amongst ourselves about the black image. Big lips, black skin, big round. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, you can't go back to the times of slavery when we were trying to be disenfranchised to say this was the image that white society saw as negative. Now that's fine. And even white society sees that as negative now, that's an issue to debate and to discuss. Why do we as black people look at that image and want to turn away from that image and say, that's not who we are? Because that is who millions of, not all of us, 
that's who millions of us are. And that's what we have to change, the image of the negative black man. I'm not talking about a black man in chains and hanging from a tree. I'm talking about a cartoon of a black man with big lips. What is wrong with that? Because we, in our, even in our own mind, we, then, we still see that as negative. We're trying to get away from that. We're trying to elevate ourselves out of that because that's not us. But what about the ones who are jet black with big lips? What are we saying to them? And this is where the nuances of a class, the nuances of what is beauty, appearance comes in. And even from my own perspective, that is why, look at the Uncle Tom scenario. When people call, talk about Uncle Tom, now if you know the history of, of slavery and you know the reality of slavery, you would know that Uncle Tom, who Uncle Tom's cabin, and, and they call you Uncle Tom because you work in the house rather than in the field, you were at more risk than someone working in the field. You're working in the master's field. Sorry, in the master's house. He is in charge. You break a cup you're in trouble. You look at somebody sideways, you're in trouble. So therefore, you really had to be on your guard and pretend to be yes, sir, no, sir, even if you didn't want to do that. Now, how can we criticize that man? How can we criticize that man and say, if that was us, we wouldn't have done that? You have to have empathy with people in their environment to understand what they actually went through. So to criticize either black people of the past who did certain things, when we're sitting here in a nice 2020, whereby we can go and tear statues down and say, in the past, this is what we did. Black footballers in the past, you know, they kept their mouth shut. And if we were there, we would have done this. No, you would not have. You would go along with whatever's going along there. We would all like to think we would be the hero. When we watch films and you look at war, and this has got nothing to do with race, this has got to do with human beings. You look at war and we all think, and we had this conversation about 95% and 5% in a different context, but we all think that we will be the hero in the war. 95% wouldn't be, 5% would, but the 5% thinks I would do that, we don't know. And it's really since I've started to visit Africa in the last 10 years and seeing conflict and seeing the horrors, I was in Rwanda to promote peace and reconciliation and I met this man who had to kill his wife because he was a Hutu, she was a Tutsi, and the army forced him to do it. I, had, I was having coffee with a friend and then this man came, stayed with us for five minutes, had a coffee, then he left. Normal man, just like me. When he left, my friend went to me, he had to kill his wife in the genocide because he was a Hutu, she was a Tutsi. The Hutu army was going to all the normal Hutus and say, you have to kill other, your neighbors or else we're gonna kill you and your family. Five of the football team got killed by their teammates. Now, how could I judge that man to then say, I would never do that, I would never do that because how do I know how I would react? And from, I thank God that that I'm not in that environment to make me have to make that choice. But having met that man and seeing how normal he is, because if I'd heard about him in that meeting, I would have thought he was the devil. So when you see people, rather than judge them and think, I'm better than you because of whatever situation, forget about race. We have to have empathy and understanding because people think empathy and understanding is about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. It's not, it's about becoming that person. Now, John Barnes, being brought up the way I've been brought up, I magically go to Rwanda at 50, and then the next day this happens, I may react differently. But if John Barnes is born and brought up in Rwanda and lived that experience, then that's what empathy is. But we don't do that. We just say, I would never do that. So um, it's, 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 it's a very complex situation in terms of the, the, the fight against racism, sexism, but we're trying to make it too simplistic. We're trying to just say, all we have to do is stand up and, 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 and do this and, and the outcome will be that. So, and we've been doing that for hundreds of years and um, we have to take a different approach. That's a uh, very, very enlightening, John, and very um, humbling what you're saying. I think it's uh, spot on. Um, I think on a, a more um, lighter side, I think we were talking about when you first came to England, and um, I think I told you that um, it was a Chinese guy who actually discovered Bob Marley. And uh, 
in Jamaica, there's a lot of Chinese guys. And I think you're, you're fa- when you moved to London, your father first took you to Chinatown to eat because you guys eat a lot of Chinese food. Can you tell us a bit about that yeah. experience to the audience? Well, of course, Chinese food in Jamaica is the biggest, Chinese and Indian food. In fact, our national dish is curried goat. But of course, Jamaican food, you know, when slaves came from Africa, it's African food at that time was, was fairly bland because food in Africa is about survival, not necessarily taste. So of course, Jamaica, then of course, you had a lot of invention sermons from India and from China. So Jamaican food is very spicy, you know, lots of, you know, Chinese influences, there's garlic and chili and, you know, all kinds of Szechuan peppers. So, so we love Chinese food. And of course, growing up in Jamaica, because the Chinese then become the businessmen and the restaurant owners, they don't work in the Chinese restaurants. They own them, but the indigenous people, well, not indigenous people because the Native Americans who were in Jamaica died off many years ago, so the, the, the black people became the so-called indigenous people. They're, and of course, because they are the lower class and they're the working class, so they work in the restaurants as waiters, and the Chinese people own the restaurants. You didn't have Chinese waiters, they owned the restaurants. So of course, coming to England, we're not thinking of the dynamic of maybe, you know, the white society being the rulers and whatever. We didn't even think about it. We just thought, let's go to a Chinese restaurant. Then we went to the Chinese restaurant and we saw, the, you know, the owners and the people on the reception. Then we saw white waiters and we thought, no, sorry, we saw Chinese waiters. And we thought, we can't believe that the Chinese people are, are, are the waiters because we know them to own the restaurant. You know, because in Jamaica, they wouldn't be waiters. And it, it was just a strange conditioning once again, uh, which we become conditioned to think, not in terms of, racial hierarchy whites to chinese we knew chinese to black that chinese were racially in jamaica the hierarchy as it stands and it's only after a few year, a few weeks actually we're like oh no 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 of course they're not going to have you know um white waiters because white people this is their society this is where they they work so the chinese people are the waiters but once again there's so many elements of of the way we've been conditioned to think and programmed to think which explains exactly the reason why you know the way the world is and also in terms of you know, as I said, I went to a school called St. George's College, which I would probably say a quarter of the school, and you're talking about kids of maybe 800 kids, so you're talking about 200 kids would have been Chinese. It's incredible. And when my, when my family, my kids first went to Jamaica and they met Chinese people with Jamaican, and I'm talking about Jamaican accents, like if you go to Jamaica, never mind the Jamaican accents in Brixton or in England, they were just so amazed because you don't expect to see. Once again, because of the way we've been conditioned to think, and it brought it home to me when I went to Glasgow and I was managing Celtic and he went to Indian restaurants. And of course, Indian restaurants um, in London, because I suppose of the nondescript accent, if you like, or the accent I'm used to. But, you know, when I first went up to Glasgow and you see the people in the, in the Indian waiters and all in, in, with the strongest Glaswegian accents, that was also a little bit, you know, strange. And there's nothing wrong with that. We see it, we accept it, we acknowledge it, rather than pretending that there's nothing strange. It's not strange, but as if like we just see people. We don't just see people, we see different groups. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the perception we have of those groups from a negative or positive point of view. But um, even today, Winston Chung, who's uh, unfortunately passed away, my, my first footballing mentor as a seven-year-old in Jamaica, Winston Chung, my first coach, who was Hakka Chinese, second generation, spoke Hakka. My kids met him, Winston, and of course, they couldn't understand what he was saying because he's got the strongest Jamaican accent you'll ever heard. That's very interesting. John, let's talk about some of the like personal lessons in your life. What's the, been the most significant setback in your life and what lessons did you learn from that? Fortunately, I learned all of my lessons before I had any major setback in terms of how to treat adversity. Because as I said, as a, as a uh, seven, eight-year-old boy who loved swimming and wanted to continue to swim for my club, but my father said, if you're not going to be committed and disciplined, you're not going to do it. Um, I understood that un- unless I was committed to doing something, you will have setbacks. 
Um, and if you have those setbacks, how do you come back from them? Uh, and because of my philosophy, if you like, um, in terms of fate, karma, whatever anyone wants to call it, if we don't know what it is, what we are, my mother used to, she, she was really worried about me, my mom, <laughs> because from an educational point of view, she used to work about six o'clock in the morning for her to, for me and her, when I, from I was 10 years old, to go and do transcendental meditation to try and implant in my subconscious things about positive thinking, which of course, as a 10 year old boy, I was thinking, please mom, hurry up and shut up so I'm going to go to school. Some of it would have sunk in. I really became a real believer in what is meant to be, is meant to be. So therefore, when I got injured, when I had setbacks, when I lost, when I did whatever, as long as I did it with authenticity to try to be successful, it really, I, I quickly let go of any negativity. Quickly let go and then thought about the positives. Rupture my Achilles tendon, I was gonna be out for eight months. Instead of thinking eight months, I thought it'll be eight months and I'm looking forward to the end of the seven and a half months when I'm getting to be fit rather than thinking it's eight months. And I've always been that way ever since I was young, mainly to do with the way I've been brought up. So I suppose to answer your question, um, I was prepared for the setbacks and it didn't matter what the setback was, is your attitude towards it. Because of course you have bigger setbacks in terms of injuries, little setbacks in terms of losing against Arsenal as maybe you're a bit too young to remember in 1989. How do you even approach that? How do you approach that? Um, and once again, big lesson I learned from that. And once again, to be a bit topical on football, people talk about how terrible that would have been. Now, if you think about it, we won the league the year before. Now this is Hillsborough, the year of Hillsborough when we yeah. didn't, after Hillsborough, we didn't play for many weeks. So we had to make up five matches on everybody else in literally two weeks. And these are big games to win the league. And we won all the games to then go above Arsenal to the last game of the season. Now, not thinking about the trauma of Hillsborough, what we had to go through emotionally, physically, we're just playing football. That last game, then we had the cup final against Everton the following week, which we won, fortunately, but we lost that last game against Arsenal. People talk about how terrible it was because to lose 2-0 at home, we could have lost 1-0 and won the league. That's why this will never happen again. When Man City won the league by Aguero scoring against Queen's Park Rangers in the last two minutes and Man United, um, and they beat them in the last seconds, they weren't playing against each other. Imagine if those two had to play each other and whoever won would have won the league. So this, this will never happen again. And that was really unique and the most powerful moment. So A, it will never happen again. And B, imagine Liverpool. I think if we had to win that game, we would have won. But the fact that we could even lose or draw or lose 1-0 meant that we approached it in a different way. Plus the fact that all the upheaval that we've been going through emotionally and physically five games in two weeks, all of that. But why I'm telling this story is nothing to do with any sympathy or feeling about whether we should have won or lost. It's a lesson I learned after it. The year before we won the league, and this really is, is, is the way my, the philosophy of my life anyway. The year before we won the league, we came in after winning the league, 30 seconds, coming into the dressing room, Ronald Moran, the coach, God rest his soul, had the winner's medals in a plastic bag. Just a plastic bag. Primark or one of those cheap bags. It wasn't like, you know, Marks and Spencer or anything like that. And all he said after we won the league, he put them on the table and he said, pre-season training in July the 7th. We didn't make a song and dance about it. We won the league. And why that was from my family to Graham Taylor to Liverpool, Bill Shankly's philosophy is, it's finished, it's gone. What's next? What's next is we have to do it again. And how do you keep that hunger and that determination to do it again? Is that you forget about it. Because had we parted and thought about we're the league champions for the next two, three, four months, the league, league would have started, would have been losing games, but we still would have been league champions. So the way you treat success is that, yes, we've worked hard to get the success, forget about it because we have to do it again. The repetition of success is what, what's important, not the initial success. That's an easy lesson to learn or to actually advocate when you're winning. What about when you're losing? Next year, we lost to Arsenal. And if you think about it, if we're losing 2-0 with 
half an hour to go and we're not going to score. You would have had half an hour to think, oh, we've lost the league. We're disappointed. Coming in the dressing room after half an hour, you know, well, we, half an hour ago, we knew we lost the league. So therefore, how are we going to be feeling? We're disappointed, but it's not raw. 89 minutes gone and we've won the league. We're losing 1-0, but we've won the league. 90 minutes, they score. 92 minutes, the referee blows. So we've had two minutes of having euphoria of winning the league for 89 minutes and in two minutes, how depressed and down are we going to be for those two minutes? We came in the dressing room, a little bit of shouting and arguing. Ronald Moran, plastic bag, loser's medals. He puts it on the table and he says, preseason training July the 7th. What he, because the way you treat triumph and disaster is exactly the same, your attitude towards it in the future. Because had we wallowed in self-despair and pity about how we've lost the league, we'd never have raised ourselves to go and win the league like we did the next year. And that has always been my philosophy. When we've won, I've not got too excited or carried away. When we've lost, much to the chagrin of my wife, because she says, you don't really get excited about anything. You know, when things happen and I'm a little bit excited for a while, then I've calmed down. When the worst thing happens in the world, a little bit depressed. And then after, it's fine. That's very interesting, John. We, we recently listed a company on uh, New York Stock Exchange, Fubo, on the 8th of October, and we've pushed beyond like a 1 billion US valuation. And even after doing that, it was like, you know, what next? What do we do next? So there was a bit of a anti-climax after we worked so hard for that. So moving on, uh, regarding principles. Well, funny you should say that. Funny you should say that because, of course, the film The Wolf of Wall Street, remember that, how people get so excited yeah. when things happen, it goes up and it's great and it goes down and everything's depressed. That's yeah. the line we got to go a little bit above, a little bit below. Absolutely. Um, so principles and ethics, what, what do you live by and how do you uphold them? Um, humility. And I suppose that is why when great things happen and when you meet people who you consider to be better than you, to be less than you, uh, different groups, um, empathy, humility, understanding, because that is what life is. That it always has been. That's, what, that, that's how human beings have survived. Because if you go back to, you know, um, thousand years ago, okay, 90,000 years ago, first in Africa, you came into Europe, went to the Southeast Asia 50,000 years ago, how we survived because we were never the, the strongest, we were never the biggest, we became the brightest. However, we survived in numbers because of the relationships we had with groups and we never separated from that. Now, as time went on, you had an elite group of people who will then want a little bit more than everybody else. And of course, got a bit more than everybody else while everybody was satisfied with what they actually had. And that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But nevertheless, there still has to be that, 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 that community and that togetherness and that belief. And that is why, once again, from the propaganda point of view, from a, from a uh, uh, point of view of people looking at certain political ideologies, be it communism, be it socialism, and really feeling either one is much better than the other, one is worse than the other. It's not as bad as everything seems, because if you want to go back to even from Chairman Mao to, to what happened in Vietnam, and I've been to Vietnam not long ago, and as much as it is a single party communist state, it's just like England, there's no difference. But we presume that communism is like this, or socialism is like that, and capitalism is like this. It's all the same about relationships, because even in a socialist or a communist state, they still have to have the respect for the people to understand, okay, it's a little bit different than we, but if you upset the people too much, they still have that power. They still have that power. So for me, it's about the community as a whole and not looking at people and also understanding that because of their environment and the way they've been brought up and the opportunity. Why was I born a black man? A, why was I born a black man? Oh, isn't that terrible? Ah, but I was born a black man in an environment for about my family were an elite family. So therefore I have had lots of privileges. 
So therefore, understanding things that are beyond our control rather than looking at the ego, the self, and thinking it's all about what I did and I did this. That is why we have to pay respect. And is the spirituality, is it religion, whatever it is, you have to pay respect to, to something that's bigger than you, something that you have no control over, that has given you an opportunity to grow, to learn, and that is why even from a Buddhist perspective, even if you're born into poverty and they look at that as a, as, as a blessing to then say, this is a chance for me to grow and to learn. So, and it's easy to look at it from that perspective when um, things aren't going well and you can take some solace from the fact that this is what I'm meant to do at this time and people may see that suffering, but I don't. It's an experience for me to grow. You should have that same attitude when things are going great. So therefore, if you're born as a millionaire or whatever, instead of thinking, oh, I'm great, think about, I'm very fortunate to be where I am, understanding why things happen. And I suppose that really is, is, is my philosophy, which keeps me happy. Even if it's not true, even if it's not true, why it keeps me happy is because when things go terrible, because I really do believe that this is the way it's supposed to be, I accept it. If I didn't believe it, and I think it's a nice thing to say, inside I wouldn't be happy because I'm saying, I don't know I'm saying this, but I don't really believe it. So I'm depressed because I can't get a job as a manager. I don't want to be a manager. And, you know, I wish I didn't have to make it his tender. But because I really do believe it, it really, and that's what we want. All we want as human beings is to be content and to be happy. And different things make different people happy. Unfortunately, the majority of the world isn't in the place where the much, a lot of us are. And as much as we look down on them and feel superior to them and feel better than them and feel sorry for them, rather than being having empathy with them, we have sympathy with them. And we shouldn't have sympathy. We shouldn't have sympathy because that puts us in a position of being better than them and feeling that we're better off than them. And we're not. We're not. So I suppose, and this really stems from the way my mother brought me up with those times when she was really talking to me about Buddhism and, and the way things are when I was really trying not, not to listen to her. Some of it would have sunk in. And I've only realized that, you know, um, after I left them and became a man. Interesting, John. So does religion or spirituality um, have anything to do with your success? And what, what is, how, does, how do you live by in your daily lifestyle now? Well, I think more spirituality than religion. Of course, religion, regardless of, of, of what people think, um, a lot of people may think that religion is a way to control people. And I suppose back then, when it first started, be it from, I mean, I'm a Confucianism was very interesting because that's just really a way of, of, I think that that's a fantastic way to live because as much as people look at it as a religion, it's also a functional way to live when you talk about respect for people and, 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 and from a governmental point of view, living in, in, in a world which is, so yes, you do have some spirituality, but you also have to function as a human being from the point of view of learning about numbers and learning about life and respect for people. Uh, where you have other religions which are completely ascetic, where, whereby, you know, a lot of people find that hard to, to, to comprehend. And then you have, you know, Christianity. Ultimately, I think they all preach the same thing. They all preach about love. But I think any, any real strict organized religion is about control. And of course, back then you do, and you do need control. And until you are able politically to control a situation, which, you know, a thousand years ago maybe weren't, from a religious point of view, maybe you then have to condition people to think that there's something that they have to adhere to and there's something they have to follow, which is what religion was. And of course, once politics came in and, and, and the, the environment grew and, and, and civilization grew, whereby from a political point of view, um, you could do what you think is right, regardless of your political ideologies, and you didn't need religion anymore. But I think the balance is important because there always is a human element to any political ideology a religious element, a spiritual element. So I don't look at any particular religion. I will look at some things in Buddhism, some things in, in, in Christianity, you look at Islam, 
But ultimately, they preach the same thing about love, peace, togetherness, regardless of your interpretation of it. Um, but ultimately, there still is something spiritual that we all believe and we pretend we don't. And what I always say about that is that the biggest atheist, the biggest person who says I don't believe in anything, when you are in the sea and a great white shark is coming towards you, you are going to hope, pray, hope, wish, whatever it is. And you say, that's not religion, I'm just wishing. Or your loved one has got cancer and they're going to die. And you want something to come and intervene on your behalf. If you don't believe in anything, what is that? What are you hoping to intervene on his behalf? If you just believe that things are the way they are. And when you see things like, why did that shark bite that person? Why did that person who was 100% going to die, all of a sudden the cancer left them? When things happen, brain tumors, when things happen and you just go, you know what? That's life. That's what I believe in. Be it luck, be it faith, be it God, be it Buddha, be it whatever, life. And something we don't understand and we never will understand and we're searching for the answers. So the balance is important, but I always believe in something more that we really do not understand. It's a good way of looking at it, John. John, what about role models? Who was your role model? Uh, who were your role models and are there any other people that you look up to now? My father's my ultimate role model. As I said, you know, even my father, when he was growing up in, 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 as an elite person in Jamaica, he always wanted to do particularly, and he felt strongly about this. And of course, this is in the 60s and 70s. He felt strongly about young black boys. Yes, you can get an education because my father at 14 years old got his first hire which is like A-levels in Trinidad. He was in top three, not top three percent, top three people in Trinidad. He came third in the brightest boys in Trinidad. He did um, classical Greek for A-levels. I mean, he was a very, very bright man. He became, but he always felt that for young black boys who aren't going to be given that opportunity, they should get a profession. And the profession is go and cut the grass, go and do something. Because the discipline that you have to have to be successful is for young black boys to be able to do something because he knows how difficult it's going to be for young black boys, which is even being proven now, particularly the inner cities. So my father, for me, is the greatest man ever. I met Nelson Mandela, which until my, until, uh, up until, I, until my father never met a man like that. I was in um, Liverpool, 1996. We went to South Africa. And this was the time of the... 1994. Went to South Africa, the time of the change. And Nelson Mandela, uh, and they, I was uh, doing a... I wasn't coming to the end of my career, but I was still doing a bit of media. So Granada, obviously ITV, said, let's do a documentary on the change. And as much as I'm the captain of Liverpool, I'm going there to play. In my spare time, let's go around with a camera interviewing people. Went to meet the clerk in Pretoria, who was the president at the time. And then they said, let's do an interview with Mandela. So I was introducing him as the captain on, um, on, on the pitch. We're going to play it against Kaiser Chiefs. And the producer, much many, said, ask him for an interview. So I said, Mr. Mandela, as I'm introducing, we're doing a documentary on the change in South Africa. You're now out and you're going to be the president. Um, can we have an interview? And I thought he'd say, okay, let's do it five minutes on the side of the pitch or let's do it somewhere. And he said to me, wrote down his address on a bit of paper. And he says, come to my house tomorrow. He gave me the address. And it was like, okay, so going to his house. And as we're driving to his house, and it's so strange, once again, conditioning. We're driving to Nelson Mandela's house in Houghton, lives in Houghton, a place called Houghton. Um, I think it was Houghton in Johannesburg. We had two white Afrikaans drivers, cameramen, me, black, the producer from England, white, and a PA, a white girl, in the car. And we were driving along the road up to Houghton. We weren't sure what, what, where the road was. So there's a black guy walking on the road. So the Afrikaans, cap, um, tap, the, the, the driver, he was the, the cameraman, but he was in the front. He went the window down and he said to him, excuse me, go, do you know where Mr. Mandela lives? And the black guy looked at him and he went, no, shook his head, he said, he doesn't know where he lives. And just walked off. But as we're driving very slowly, because we're driving along looking at the names of the roads, he kept looking in the car, then he saw me in the back. He came over and knocked on the window, the back window, and wound it down. 
And he said, you John Barnes? I went, yeah. He goes, M M Nelson Mandela, second right, first left, number two. That's where he lives. <laughs> now, of course, if you think about it, this is 94, the change is just happening. If two white Afrikaans people said, where does Mandela live when you're black? You say you don't know where it is. <laughs> but obviously, because that's where he's been conditioned. And I said to him, he said, don't worry, brother. You know, we're in charge now because it's 94, so we're now in charge. <laughs> so in the conditioning of knowing that it's okay to say where Mandela lives because this is not like in apartheid times, but this was just after the changeover. So that was a funny story when we got there. We got there. We sat down, interview, half an hour. After the interview was finished, I sat there for two hours with him. His daughter, his granddaughter made lunch for us. Me and him sat there and we spoke. And we talk about a great man. And the greatest thing about him was his humility. What he said, all he kept saying was, there are many greater men than me who didn't live to see this day. I'm going to get the glory. Steve Biko, other people who have been killed, they're not around, and people are going to look at me, but they're greater men than me. Who's here? He never said how great I am. He was just so humble. And he said, my biggest challenge is to convince white people that they have to stand help us to rebuild the country. Regardless of politically, when you're looking at Zimbabwe and Mugabe, which is a very nuanced situation anyway, that's a different situation. And I have sympathy with Mugabe for a different reason, but that's a different thing. He understood that a lot of white people are going to flee the country because they think it's going to be changed because black men are going to come and take everything. He said, we don't know how to run the country. We've never run the country. We need, we need you to stay and help us to run the country. So he never ostracized. He never, and these are people who put him in prison. These are people. And his whole thing was about a united South Africa. And the biggest lesson I learned from him, from, um, I never met, obviously, Martin Luther King or Gandhi, as much as there's nuances around Gandhi in terms of the way he felt about black South Africans to, to, to his own Indian people. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make about those three people is a lawyer, two lawyers, Gandhi, Ma uh, um, Mandela, Martin Luther King, preacher, they advocated for the people, not for themselves. What, what, what Martin Luther King, Gandhi, what Gandhi could have said is that we need more elite black Indian lawyers because that's going to help the population. He didn't say that. He said, let's help the people. Nelson Mandela as a lawyer would have been a multimillionaire if he said we need more lawyers in the system and lawyers being able to do what they do because they've got lots. Mandela as a black lawyer would have had lots of clients. He would have made loads of money. But he never said let's have lots of black lawyers. He said let's have the average black man being given a vote, being given respect. And that is what I want to talk about. Not needing more black managers. Yes, we do. Black people in the boardroom. Yes, we do. But what's more important and what's more urgent, very much like the whole Black Lives Matter, White Lives Matter debate. Of course, White Lives Matter. But there's something more urgent, something that we need to do now, which is much more urgent than the whole idea of all lives matter, which is that. Now, we do need more black lawyers, doctors, uh, people on television, managers. But what's more urgent is for the average man in the, black, in, in, in the inner city community, the average black man, to be able to get an education and his kids stop being stabbed. That's what we need more than John Barnes being a manager. And that, that's what I do now. So, John, I, I, we, we, we've been talking about this. You've got an exciting new thing um that you're doing like a pet project which has been bubbling for a number of years so can you share with the audience what you're planning to do with your new book <laughs> well it's a book that i've been writing for many years because of course i'm doing it myself and when i say myself i mean actually doing you know you get a journalist to do it and then you send him over and he tidies it up and whatever i'm doing it myself but i've but fortunately, um, I've got very bright sisters, and they're the ones who are doing the spell checks and the, the dots. And you know, I did send in the introduction, and he said that the full stop is in the wrong place. But we'll tidy that up um, because it's about my thoughts, and it's a very simple book. It's because I've read lots of books. I mean, I mean, my daughter's bedroom now. We've got builders downstairs. But if you go downstairs where you've got those books behind you, you see so many books on race and equality and history, and all the books I've read are quite complicated from a linguistic point of view for the average person to understand. 
I'm not saying that even I understand it, but I'm, I'm, you know, as some kind of like, you know, pseudo intellectual because I'm, I, you know, I can't understand it, but it's any, any average person reading the book will put it down straight away because, you know, the words that are used and the way it's actually put together. Um, so it's a very simple way in terms of my perception of lots of what we've been talking about today, lots of examples of the past, which makes us feel the way we are today, because a lot of people, particularly lately, feel that I, I am criticizing the colonial past. I'm not, I'm, whatever happened, happened. And of course, if it wasn't Britain who were doing it, anybody else would have done it. It could have been, if, 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 if the, the, the Persians had beaten the Greeks um, all those years ago, the Persians would have been like the Western colonizing everywhere. So it's not as if that they were any different to anybody else. But the point I make is that we believe in the altruism and moral superiority of the West, of which America now obviously is part of for the last hundred years. And that's based on our interpretation of the history that we've actually had for the last 400 years. And what I do is very much like when I spoke about the man in Rwanda, whereby I'm not going to judge it because that could be me. I put myself in those situations and I say, were these people from the Winston Churchill's to the Nelsons, to the Stalins, to the chairman, were they as evil or as good as people make out? Whereas we look today and there's nobody around today who we would put into that, obviously Adolf Hitler, but he's not around today. There's nobody around today who would put in that context of either being so great or so terrible. So really, back then, they weren't so great or so terrible. They're like everybody else. They were normal people. But the point I'm making is because of the perception people have of them, people now in 2020 and for the last 50 years, really since the turn of the century, when colonialism really started in the 1880s, people have now looked at what happened in the past and elevated themselves vicariously because of who they consider to be their heroes. So that's why I say, that's how I equate it to that ignorant racist football fan who's never been to school he can't even get a job feeling superior to me not because he feels superior to me but he feels that people who came before him who look like him and what they what he thinks they did makes him superior to me and that is what we have to challenge and that is what we have to dismantle and i'm not talking about changing history history is an interpretation of events that happened and one man's history you know you could read about and we talked about this in chinese opium wars which is a glorious victory for england but it's a little bit different than you know the reality of it we have to challenge things that went on in the past really to explain why we feel superior or inferior from a black perspective. So I'm from Jamaica. And of course you have, Africa was a colony as well, but I'm from Jamaica. And of course we do O levels as it was back then, GCSEs, A levels. So we do English education, history and everything else. As a young boy growing up in Jamaica, how did I look at Africans? I looked at them because Africans were in the jungle running naked around and swinging through trees. So that's what I was told and I'm black. So in terms of the way I was conditioned to think about them. So this is what we, we have to change because we've all been conditioned to think in terms of racial, sex hierarchy, um, sexual preference and stuff like that. And this is my whole thing now is about debunking everything we've learned. And that's what the book is, but in a very, very simple form, by giving examples of the past and thinking, do you really feel that when Gordon in the Sudan, when his British army got decimated by, you watch the film, then you read the books, is these wild savages who are just savage rather than being, uh, a great organizational army who can defeat the British army. And when you see the films of Gordon coming down um, after his whole army has been defeated, through tactics, through intelligence, but we don't see that. We just see these wild people with spears and you think to yourself, well, how could they beat the British army who had guns and machine guns if they were just so unintelligent and just so uncouth? But that's, that's not the reality. And things like that, which maybe makes us feel the way we do from an intellectual and moral point of view, we have to change. And from my point of view, from a racial point of view, my most important message and what i really want to change is that forget about from a sporting perspective how great we can be in having sporting role models john barnes um usain bolt singers rappers actors the equality i'm interested in is the moral and intellectual equality 
everything else can, can go by the wayside because everything else is truth. Sports is truth. Regardless of how you see Usain Bolt or Mike Tyson, he's going to knock you out, he's going to beat you. Can you see them equally? From, can you see them as equal from an intellectual and moral point of view? Because that is a lie. Absolutely, John. John, what is your life ethos? My life ethos is, is, is humility and understanding. Because as I said, people always say to me, you know, you're John Barnes and whatever you may have done. And they say, oh, you must know famous people. I, have, I, I, have no, I know no famous people. I've got no friends who are, you know, in Hollywood or, 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 or you know, because I, 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 I like normal people <laughs> because I see myself as normal. You know, I see myself as normal. So even when I played and even when I played and, and, and I was John Barnes and I'm in Liverpool, I lived in, I had to move, um, I was moving flat and um, I was moving down to the Albert Dock and then, you know, the Albert Dock. Uh, and I had a, a, a six week period before I moved and a friend of mine had a dentist on, I don't know if you know Liverpool, but it was right by Anfield, which is not a nice area, <laughs> you know, at nights back then, a uh, very rough area. And a friend of mine had a, a one bedroom flat on top of his dentist, he was a dentist. So I said, well, listen, I'm gonna move in a month. So I'm just gonna stay there. So I went and stayed there in, you know, a really, really undesirable area. People want to talk about undesirable areas. And the ground was there, the training ground was there. There's a, a Chinese restaurant across the road, there's a pub across the road. So I stayed there. Uh, and I thought, well, I'm just going to stay here for a while. And then the club had to write to me to then say, we don't believe that a player for Liverpool should be living in an area like this. So I actually moved because it didn't bother me, the area I was in, which is a rough working class area. And I've always been that way. As much as I've never been a working class boy, I'm from an elite family, always living. I lived in Mayfair. I lived in Highgate. I lived in Golders Green. All my friends lived in the inner city. But I always felt that, you know, I'm, I'm just a normal person. So if I have to stay there for a year, two years, whatever, it's a one bedroom flat, so what? So my ethos has always been about, I think I'm a socialist at heart. I don't think it's a good thing to be um, in this day and age. But at heart, I really just believe in the essence of, of a commonality among, among human beings. Um, as much as, you know, every now and again, I do like to go to Nobu in Mayfair and have a nice meal and stuff like that. But um, I suppose I'm, I'm just, so when people ask me how I would like to be remembered and stuff like that, I said, I, I, I don't want to be remembered in any way. I want my family hopefully to remember me and say, you know, he was a good dad or a good friend and stuff like that. But in terms of me needing for my ego, for people to say you were a great player, or a nice man, or you're this, it doesn't bother me because I am who I am. And if you like me, like me, if you don't, you don't. I try and do it with authenticity, um, with humility. So uh, I suppose I'm just, I'm just, very content. That's super, John. John, and anything is possible. As we always know, we share positivity, try to overcome challenges, create one world together. Today's been super inspiring to talk to you. Our last question always to our guests is, John Barnes, can you please share with us your number one advice, especially to our younger audience? Well, um, and, that's, and, and, and that's quite appropriate for this day and age, because of course, our younger audience, my children being, being one, there is a lot of talk about um, mental health issues and, and, and you know, depression and what we're going through. And this is not new. This has been around for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years is our perception of it and how to actually get out of it. And there's lots of help now being, being there where there wasn't help back in my day. It was about just get on with it and just do whatever you want. In terms of helping yourself, that's also the most important thing. Okay, you can look, in companies, you have HR and you have different groups who are trying to help people. Helping yourself is the most important thing. And I suppose your, your perspective on who you are in life uh, goes much further in terms of helping you rather than anybody coming in to help yourself. So the advice I'd give is stay humble, have empathy, and understand that life will get better.
if you believe that life will get better and you have empathy with the world to look and see and that's what really happens a lot to me because whenever i'm feeling down and it's difficult for me to say this because the whole idea of somebody being worse off than you which which, which i believe uh which is a great concept i go to africa often if i'm feeling down i've just got to look at the realities of life and say what have i got to worry about which is obviously not what we're actually talking about now because the fact that you are a millionaire doesn't mean that you can't be depressed but really just trying to get a better perspective as to how bad you think things really are absolutely john absolute pleasure honor um hope you stay safe and hopefully when lockdown restrictions become more accessible i'll come and see you in uh, liverpool you're a bit too close to Stamford Bridge, but we can meet somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, thank you very much, John. Thanks, Patrick.